0: Chapter 2 of An Earthman on Venus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alexis Duclos of the French podcast Citizen Cage. An Earthman on Venus by Ralph Man Farley, Stranded in Space. Thus wrote Miles Cabot. My chief line of work, since graduating from Harvard, was on the subject of television. By simultaneously using three sending sets and three receiving sets, each corresponding to one of the three dimensions, any object which I placed within the framework of my transmitter could be seen within the framework of my receiver, just as though it stood there itself. All that prevented the object from actually being made to stand there was the quite sufficient fact that no one had yet, so far as I was then aware, invented a means for dissolving matter into its well-known radiations, and then converting these radiations back into matter again. But at just this time, by a remarkable coincidence, there came into my hands a copy of an unpublished paper on this subject by René Flambeau. The prior experiments of D. Gersdorf are well known. He had succeeded by means of radio waves in isolating and distinguishing the electromagnetic constituents of all the different chemical elements. Flambeau went one step further and was able to transmit small formless quantities of matter itself although for some reason certain metals, but not their salts, appeared to absorb the electrical energy employed by him, and thus be immune to transportation. As I could already transmit a three-dimensional picture of an object, and as Flambeau had been able to transmit formless matter, then by combining our devices in a single apparatus, I found I could transmit physical objects unchanged in form. But this apparatus produced one unexpected phenomenon. Namely, that whenever I employed excessive power, my sending set would transmit objects placed slightly outside its normal range. And certain small quantities thereof would turn up in other portions of my laboratory than within my receiving set. To test this phenomenon further, I secured some high-voltage equipment and arranged with the Edison company for its use. On a small afternoon when the installation was completed, I started to place a small blue china vase in position to sell it. Something must have become short-circuit for there came a blinding flash and I knew no more. How long the unconsciousness lasted, I have no means of telling. I was a long time regaining my senses, but when I had finally and fully recovered, I found myself lying on a sandy beach, beside a calm and placid lake, and holding in my hand a small blue vase. The atmosphere was warm, moist and fragrant, like that of a hot house. And the lap lapping of the wave gave forth such a pleasing musical sound that I lay where I was and dozed off and on, even after I had recovered consciousness. I seemed to sense rather than really to see my surroundings. The sound was very white; the sky was completely overclouded at a far height. And yet the clouds shone with such a silvery radiance that the day was as bright as any which I had ever seen with full sunlight on earth, but with a difference. For here the light diffused from all quarters, giving the shadowless effect which one always notes in a photographer's studio. To my right lay the lake, reflecting the silvery color of the sky. Before me stretched the beach, unbroken save for an occasional piece of driftwood. To my left was the upland, covered with a thicket of what at first appeared to be dead trees. But on closer scrutiny were seen to be some gigantic species of the well-known branched, grey, lichen with red tips, which I used to find on rocks and sticks in the woods as a child. No birds were flying overhead. I suppose because there were no birds to fly, I fell to wondering, vaguely and pleasantly, where I was and how I got there. But for the moment I remained a victim of complete amnesia. Suddenly, however, my ears were jarred by a familiar sound. At once my senses cleared and I listened intently to the distant purring of a motor yes there could be no mistake an airplane was approaching now i could see it a speck in the sky far down the beach nearer and nearer it came i sprang to my feet and to my intense surprise found that the effort threw me quite a distance into the air instantly the thought flashed through my mind i must be on mars but no for my weight was not nearly enough lighter than my earthly weight to justify such a conclusion. For some reason my belt buckle and most of the buttons which held my clothes together were missing, so that my clothing came to pieces as I arose, and I had to shed it rapidly in order to avoid impeding my movements. I wondered at the cause of this. But my speculations were cut short by the alighting of the airplane a hundred yards down the beach. It seemed to land vertically rather than run along the ground. But I could not be sure at that distance. What was my horror when out of it clambered not men but ants. Ants. Six-footed and six feet high. Huge ants. Four of them running toward me over the glistening sands. Gone was all my languor as I seized a piece of driftwood and prepared to defend myself as well as I could. The increase in my jumping ability, although slight, coupled with an added buoyancy, might enable me to prolong the unequal encounter. The ants came slowly forward, four abreast, like a cavalry formation, while i awaited their onslaught grasping the stick of driftwood firmly in my hand when nearly upon me they executed right by troopers and started circling in an ever-narrowing circle suddenly the ants wheeled and converged from all four points of the compass clicking their mandibles savagely as they came the whole movements had been executed with uncanny precision Without a single word of communication between the strange black creatures, in fact, without a single sound except the clicking of their mandible and a slight rattling of their joints. How like a naval attack by a fleet of old-fashioned Ford cars, I thought, when within about ten feet of me, they made a concerted rush but I leaped to one side, at the same time giving one of my antagonists a crack with my club as they crashed together in the center. This denouement seemed to confuse them, for they slowly extricated themselves from their tangle and withdrew for a short distance, where they again formed and stood glaring at me for a few minutes, clicking their jaws angrily. Then they rushed again, this time in close formation, but again I jumped to one side, dealing another blow with my club, whereupon the fighting became disorganized, the ants making individual rushes, and I leaping and walking as best I could. I scored several dents in the armor of my opponents, and finally succeeded by a lucky stroke in beheading one of them, but at this the other three came on with renewed vigor. Although, each ant wore some sort of green weapon slung in a holster at its side, they fought only with their mandibles. The slight difference in gravity from that to which I had been accustomed finally proved my undoing. For, although it increased my agility, it also rendered me a bit less sure on my feet, and this was enhanced by the rapid disintegration of the soles of my shoes. The result was, at last, I slipped and fell, and was immediately set upon and pinned down by my enemies. One of the ants at once deliberately nipped me in the side with his huge mandibles. An excruciating pain shot through my entire body, and then, for the second time that day, I lost consciousness. When I came to, I found myself lying in the cockpit of an airplane, spinning through the sky. One of my ant captors was standing on a slight incline at the bow of the ship, operating the control levers with his front feet, and the other two were watching the scenery. The dead ant was nowhere to be seen. No one was paying any attention to me. I was not bound, and yet I was unable to move. My senses were unusually keen, and yet my body was completely paralyzed. I had no idea as to what sort of country we were flying over, for I could not raise my head above the edge of the cockpit. I didn't know where I was going, but I certainly was on my way all right. And not so all right at that. Overhead was the same silvery glare without a patch of blue sky. No sound came from my sinister, indifferent captors. The only noise was the throbbing of the motors. As to the time of day, or how long I had been on board, I had no idea. And what's more, I didn't particularly care. Rather a pleasant sort of a jag, if it were not for the intense pain of liquoring up. After a while, the pleasant sensation wore off, and my throat began to feel dry. I tried to call to the ants, but of course could not because of the paralysis, and finally desisted even the attempt, when I remembered that the ants were speechless and the ants probably unable to hear. By a coincidence, however, one of the creatures seemed to sense my needs and brought me some water in a bowl, gently holding up my head with one of his forepaws so that I could drink. This action touched my heart, and also filled me with hope that the ants might not turn out to be such bad captors after all, that I fell to studying them. First of all, I noticed that each ant carried on the back of his thorax a line of peculiar white characters, somewhat like shorthand writing, and below it several rows of similar writing, only smaller in size. The peculiar green-colored weapon slung in a holster on the right-hand side of each ant I had already noticed during the fight, but apart from the white marks and the green weapons, my captors were absolutely naked, and so far as I could see they were exactly like the ordinary black ants to which I had been accustomed on earth, only of course magnified by an enormous size. I studied the faces which the ants now occasionally turned towards me. These faces were sinister and terrifying. They recalled to my memory the fright which I had once had when, as a child, I attended an entomological movie and was suddenly confronted with a close-up of the head of some common insect. But the ant who had brought me the water had a human look which relieved him of much of his terrible grimness. In fact, he struck me as vaguely familiar. Ah, now I had it. A certain stolidity of movement, amounting almost to a mannerism, reminded me of one of my Harvard classmates, a homely, good hearted boy whom we had all known by the nickname of Dogo. And so, from then on, I instinctively thought of that particular ant as named Dogo. Then, For the first time, it struck me as strange that these ants, instead of scuttling aimlessly over the ground or having wings of their own to fly with, as in the mating season on Earth, were utilizing a carefully and scientifically built airplane, apparently of their own make. And it struck me as even more strange that I had not wondered about this before. But then the events of that day had occurred with such startling rapidity from the flash in my Beacon Street laboratory, through my awakening beside that strange lake, the approach of the airplane, my fight with the ants, and my second lapse from consciousness down to my present predicament that I was to be excused for not considering any particular phase of my adventure as being more extraordinary than any other. Now, however, that I had time to draw my breath and collect my thought, it dawned on me with more and more force that here I was, apparently on some strange planet of which the ruling race, apparently of human or superhuman intelligence, were not men. And there were not even some other mammal, but were insects. Ants, to be more specific... For all that I knew, I was the only mammal, or perhaps even the only vertebrate, on this entire planet. Then I remembered a remark by Professor Parker in Zoology 1 in my freshman year at Harvard. The two peaks of development, in the chain of evolution from the amoeba upward, are the order of Hymenoptera, bees, wasps, and ants, among insects and the order of primates, men and monkeys, among mammals. In any other world, it is probable that evolution would produce a ruling race in much the same way that man has been produced upon the Earth. And it is a toss-up whether this ruling race would develop along the line of the Imenoptera or in a form similar to the mammals. But one or the other seems inevitable. Well, said I to myself, Old Parker is certainly vindicated, at least with respect to one planet. Thus I mused, as the airplane sped along. Then the purr of the motors lulled me to sleep, and for the third time that day, I became unconscious. When I awoke, the sky was losing its luminous silver quality. On one side it was faintly pink, and on the other the silver color merged into a duller gray the airship still sped along. Dogo brought me another bowl of water, and I found, to my joy, that I could now lift my head enough to drink without any further assistance than to have Dogo hold the bowl. At this sign of recovery, one of the other ants advanced menacingly, as if to bite me again. But Dogo jumped between us, and after much snapping of mandibles and quivering of antennae by both, the other ant desisted. This event decided me that Dogo was a friend worth cultivating, but I was at the loss how to make advances which would be understood. Finally, however, I determined to attempt stroking the huge ant in a way which I had found to be very effective in making friends with animals. Accordingly, when Dogo came near enough, by a great effort i overcame my paralysis sufficiently to reach up and touch him on the side of his head just behind one of his great jaws apparently this pleased the ant for he submitted to the caress and finally lifted me to a sitting position so that the padding could be continued with greater ease i later learned that this padding to which i had resorted purely by accident is a universal custom of this planet, corresponding to shaking hands on Earth and signifying greetings, friendship, farewell, bargain, binding and the like. The other Ant-Man occasionally would advance menacingly toward me with his head lowered, but each time Dogo would step between us and lower his own head and agitated antennae, at which the other would desist. I nicknamed the other Satan because of his diabolical actions. In my new sitting position, I was now able to see over the side of the airship. We were passing above grey woods with occasional silver green fields in which there were grazing some sort of pale green animals too far below to be easily distinguishable. Through the woods and fields ran what appeared to be roads but as nothing was moving on them, I could not tell for sure. Suddenly, my attention was distracted from the view by the frantic action of the ant-man who was steering the ship. He seemed to be having difficulty with his controls, and then, so quickly that it gave us no warning, the ship reared up in the air and made a complete loop. That is, I merely suppose he made a complete one, for when the loop was half done, I dropped out and fell like a plummet. I remember a momentary exultation at being free from my captors and a certain spiteful joy at the thought that I should undoubtedly be dashed to pieces and thus rob them of their prey. Then I had just begun to wonder whether I shouldn't prefer captivity to death when I struck and was not dashed to pieces. I still lived for I had been thrown slantwise into a net of some sort and was not swaying gently back and forth like a slowing pendulum. Hooray! I was both free and safe, but my joy was short-lived, for I soon discovered that the fine silken strands of the net were covered with a substance like sticky fly pepper which held me firmly. The more I struggled, the more I drew other strands of the net towards me to entangle me. At last I paused for breath, and then the truth dawned on me. I was caught in a gigantic spider web. And sure enough, there came the spider toward me from one corner of the web. It wasn't a very large spider. That is to say, judging by the size of my previous captors, I should have expected that the spiders of this world would be as big as the Eiffel Tower. He was quite large enough, however, having a body about the size of my own, and legs fully ten feet long. I call him a spider, for that is the earth word which come closest to describing him. With great assiduity, he began wrapping me into a cocoon, a process which he seemed to enjoy much more than I. But it did me no good to struggle, for any part of me which showed any indications of moving was immediately pinioned with a fresh strand of rope. At last, the job was finished, and I was completely enveloped with a layer of thick, coarse, sticky silk cloth, translucent but not transparent. End of chapter 2. Stranded in space. Recording by Alexis Duclos of the French podcast Citizen Cage.